Hamish. You're still there, man. You haven't gone out through the ladder yet. Have you been locked in there all afternoon? Listening to Abba through the headphones. How tragic. Haven't you got any friends, man? Maybe a special girl in your life or... You haven't? I think you're supposed to have. You have a wife? Where's his wife? Hello, sweetheart. You help him with his issues over shyness, will you? Hiding up there in the back. <laughs> I like Hamish. I hardly know him, but I like him. He's got a cheek wearing headphones all the way through, though, as if I'm not going to listen to you, man. I'm listening to something really cool. It's nice to be here tonight. Are you happy to be here? Yeah. Who was that? <laughs> Doing a dog impression in the third row. It's great to see you tonight. Um, I was told that the good looking ones come to this session. Okay, well. It's nice to have you here, and thank you, Steve and Ange, for having us this weekend. It's been a real pleasure. We have worked hard. There's been a lot going on, uh, but it's been wonderful to see what God is doing here. And um, we do live in South Oxfordshire. Um, we don't spend a lot of time in that city with another name that also has a boat, but... Um, that's where we live when we're not traveling. In the last couple of weeks, we've done a tour of South Africa speaking to industry leaders, politicians, urban planners, CNBC Africa, six universities, two of the greatest churches in South Africa. In the last two weeks, we've spent speaking in Hillsong, London, and now here we are we saved the best to last. Uh, I've been looking forward to coming to Cambridge to speak with you for a long time. So let's get straight into it. Let's just pray first. Lord, we thank you tonight that the Bible records we are creatures of dust. But you breathed into your creatures a breath of life. You gave us a spirit. And then because of what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, you sent your Holy Spirit to live in our spirit so that we could do the one thing that this community of faith here exists to do, and that is to make God's name great in this generation, to make God famous in our time. I pray this evening that you will help me not to get in the way of what is the thing you most want to say. And we pray that when we leave this place, Lord, we'll have our minds stretched, our hearts enlarged, our spirits encouraged. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. In Daniel chapter 1, and if you were here this morning, I'm going to do a quick introduction from where we were this morning, and if you weren't here this morning, it'll make sense anyway in itself, but it'll make more sense if, as Steve said, you get the podcast. Daniel 1 verse 3, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. 
Young men without any physical defect. Hamish. Handsome. Showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, after which they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. When a former teenage slave named Patricius eventually returned to Ireland as an adult, a bishop in the English church, he confronted a culture that was both warrior-like and highly illiterate. Men would wear the shrunken heads of their enemies from their belts as a sign of their status in society. Within one generation, St. Patrick, as we know him, had transformed that culture into a highly literate one and a peace-loving one, in which men would now hang small scrolls from their belts as a sign of their status in society. Later, during the invasions of the barbarians into Western Europe from the fourth century onwards, it was Patrick and his monks who helped to rescue the books of antiquity, guarding for our sake some of the foundation works of Western civilization. Patrick knew that kingdom culture, if it is lived out thoughtfully and consistently, will always outshine and outlast a paganized or secularized culture. And I can't help feeling that St. Patrick was greatly inspired by the biblical prophet Daniel. Because Daniel was a victim of a forced mass evacuation two and a half thousand years ago in the center of the ancient world, and though he was a refugee, stripped completely of all rights, he rose to outshine and out-influence not one or two, but five kings of ancient Babylon. A city that was far from friendly to his faith and often fiercely opposed to it. Even as a young man, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was known as a skilled and uncompromising conqueror. He moved across nations, annexing their governments, killing off their rulers, putting puppet rulers in their place, skimming off the cream of the elites, taking them off to Babylon and putting them through a program of re-education. His strategy was to alienate and integrate, to alienate them from everything that they had known previous to this time and everything that had established who they were and set up an identity within them of his own making. And in the Bible, we saw this morning that Babylon is more than a place. It's more than a city. The city itself was destroyed centuries ago in line with Bible prophecy. But we see in the Bible a prediction of Babylon re-emerging towards the end of days, the end of time, before Christ comes to set up his kingdom on earth. And this time, it's not the physical Babylon that re-emerges, but the system of thinking that Babylon represents. We said this morning, too, that Babylon and Rome are used interchangeably in the New Testament to describe any system of world government or any world global system of thinking that doesn't pay homage to Christ. Any system of one world government 
or dominant thought that doesn't recognize that the only one who has the right to rule the world is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist because I'm a futurist, and by definition, futurists have to be looking not just for the challenges ahead, but for the opportunities ahead. But I don't think it stretches believability too much to suggest to you tonight that Babylon is alive and well today as a system of thinking. And let's be clear from Jeremiah 29.7, which is a very special verse for us in the organization that I run, and I know to you as a church, it says this, seek the welfare of the city into which I have called you as exiles. Now it's written to Daniel. It's written to Daniel's generation. Seek the welfare of the city, i.e. Babylon, into which I am sending you as exiles and pray on its behalf for in seeking its welfare, you will find your welfare. We are here tonight in this church because we seek the welfare of Cambridge. We don't seek to pull it down. We don't seek to find only what is wrong with it and in need of remedy. We seek to find what is right or potentially right about it. The things that are under our feet, which previous generations have planted, which could be used for the glory and honor of our God. And we seek to redig those wells as Isaac did in Abraham's time to release that influence again. We're here to serve and seek the welfare of this city in which we sometimes feel like exiles. Let's face it. Sometimes we get out of bed on a Monday and we feel so out of place in the workspace. We feel so out of place in the market, marketplace because we have different values. We live by a different ethic. We march to a different drum. We seek the welfare of the city, but if we are going to influence the city in the way that Daniel influenced Babylon, we have to understand what Babylon would do to us if we allowed it. What sort of influence Babylon would like to have on us. Early in Daniel 1 and 2, Daniel faced this life-shaping decision that we must face today as Christians in a secularized culture. Will I be the proactive influencer or the reactive influenced? Muhammad Ali reportedly sat on a plane in first class, as you would expect, just before takeoff, seatbelt reclined, seat, uh, seat reclined, seatbelt unfastened, sipping a Coke. The stewardess came to him and said, Sir, you must fasten your seatbelt. We're about to leave. She came back a minute or two later, and Ali hadn't moved a muscle. Seatbelt unfastened, seatbelt reclined, sipping a Coke. Sir, I must insist, you fasten your seatbelt. We're about to leave. She came back at the end of her duties, preparing the cabin for takeoff. She found him still in exactly the same position. She said, sir, I must repeat, you must fasten your seatbelt. We're about to leave. Ali smiled, that mischievous Ali grin, grunted, ma'am. Superman don't need no seatbelt. And I just wish I was half as quick-witted as that stewardess. She looked at him. She said, sir, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> and that's what I call being ready for change, being on the front foot, 
being determined to have the influence in this situation. That's the attitude Daniel had. Another man who understood this was John D. Rockefeller. You may have heard of him. He was at one time in the 20th century the wealthiest, most successful business owner in the world, the founder of Standard Oil. He built America's largest energy company at a time when the nascent oil market was highly competitive. But he didn't grow up with the sort of privileges that, say, Donald Trump had. He was born into a very modest home with a father who was something of a con man. But from a very young age, he started tithing his paychecks. He believed he was called by God to steward great wealth. From the age of 21, he was involved in raising money to save struggling churches from bankruptcy, and he saved scores of churches from going under. Later in life, he funded major educational institutions, including the first ever college for black women in the United States. It's called Spelman College in Georgia, and it's still going strong today. In the Depression, when the US government needed a loan to rescue the country from bankruptcy, who did they turn to? John D. Rockefeller. He gathered his friends. Between them, they raised the $20 million that was needed, a huge amount at the time, without wanting to be recognized. He said, I've always regarded it as my religious duty to try to get all I honorably can and give all I honorably can. It wasn't perfect, none of us are, but he attended church every Sunday, prayer meetings every Friday, and he consistently tried to apply the principles of the kingdom within this highly competitive, often brutal business world. He wasn't a preacher. By the way, a lot of the figures we celebrate in the Bible were not priests. The, the, the ancient equivalent of a pastor. 99% of us today are not pastors of churches. I no longer pastor a church. I'm still a minister of the gospel, but I spend so much time in the mainstream marketplace now, that's kind of my parish, in the media and other areas. Like you, I get out of bed Monday and have other things to do. But I believe that we are as called as any pastor of any church. I believe if you're in business, you're called, as did John D. Rockefeller believe. You're called of God. If you're in media, you're called to media. If you're in education, you're called to education. If you're in law or politics, you're called to law or politics. Why? Because Ephesians 1.20 says Christ is the head of all things and has been given over head, head over all things to the church. He's not just the head of religion. He's not just the head of Christianity. He's the head of all things. It's just that most of society doesn't know it yet. And when it says he's given his head over all things to the church, it means it's my joy as a person following Jesus and my responsibility to express the headship of Christ in everything that I do. We face the same choice Rockefeller did. We face the same choice Daniel did. Will I be the proactive influencer in my system, in my Babylon, or will I be the influenced Will I be on the front foot engaging change, bringing change? Somebody said the future belongs to those who shape it today. I believe that. Will I be on the front foot or the back foot? And a study of how Daniel responded in Babylon shows us how, whatever our calling, we can out-influence the dominant culture around us, which is not always friendly to our faith. We saw this morning that in, there were five things or several things Nebuchadnezzar tried to remove from the people of Israel, like Daniel, 
to change their sense of identity under God. The first was their literature, not just what they read, but how they came to engage ideas. The second was their language, not just the words they used, but how they built relationships. The third were their names, because Jewish names contained the name of God, El or Yah, and when they were replaced by these Babylonian names, we shared their meanings this morning, they were very foreign to the Jewish sense of identity. And if we're going to overcome our Babylon, if we're going to have more influence on this culture than it has on us, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to deal with those three things too. But there are two more, and I want to give them to you now. The first one is the home. Nebuchadnezzar forcibly removed a generation from their families and their homes. And the home's important to your sense of who you are because it has the three foundations of identity built into it. And you might say to me tonight, but Mal, listen to me, I had a terrible home life. That may be true. But generally speaking, there are three things that should occur in the home. The first is the belief that I am capable. The Duke of Edinburgh is not usually known for writing books on parenting. But he said one time something that was really good. He said, I've tried to find my children doing something right and compliment them in that one area. Because if they feel they're really good in that one area, maybe their confidence will spill over into all the other areas. There's wisdom in that. I'm capable. I can do something. That starts in the home. The second thing that starts in the home is the sense that I belong. I'm somebody. I'm part of a tribe. I'm part of something bigger than I am. Now, as you get older, the family tribe becomes less important. You fill your own family and your own friends. But we learn to build tribe in the home. The third thing that comes in the home is the sense that I'm worthy, that I have intrinsic value, not extrinsic value, that I have value just for who I am, not for what I can do. Today, as in Daniel's time, the institution of the family is under pressure. Four out of every 10 marriages for whatever reasons, sometimes they're complex reasons, ends in divorce at an average cost of 44,000 pounds per couple across the nation. Admission rates to hospitals in the UK, mental hospitals, hospitals for mental health, are four to, time to six times higher for divorced people than for married people. Divorced people in this country are known to smoke and drink more and have higher rates of unprotected sex. I didn't make this up. This is from the National Health Service. And are four times more likely to enter a mental hospital at some point. And the children of divorced parents are often, not always, often more likely to face a range of social, economic and psychological problems later. Now, am I trying to depress you if you've been through a marriage difficulty or a divorce? I am not. In fact, I'm saying there is one who can turn all that around who can take your past and your present and put it on the cross and give you a great future. That's what the Bible says. There's nothing that his death doesn't cover. There's no bad start that his death and resurrection doesn't mean can be a great new beginning. I'm just giving you the facts as they are without Christ. And in our time, unlike Daniel's, it's not just the institution of the 
family that's under pressure. It's the definition of family now that's under pressure. But in the eyes of Babylon, my friends, family represents much more than the nuclear family unit of mom and dad and the kids, or dad and the kids, mom and the kids. It represents the way we build relationships of all kinds because we first learn to build relationships in the home. The way we relate to other people then is important because it's an expression of how we want to relate to God. I know a lot of people that I've met around the world who say, I can't relate, especially young people, who can't relate to God as a father because I had such a screwed up dad. And that's, that's the fact of the matter. They find it hard. I can understand that. In the home, we learn how to relate to fathers. We learn how to relate to mothers. We learn how to relate to siblings and other people generally, which affects the way we relate to God. So the home is very important to Babylon and to us. And Daniel's response to Babylon reveals how we can be proactive in our influence over our surroundings in all of our relationships, not just in the home. The number one dominant thing that Daniel showed in all relationships throughout the book of Daniel was respect. Daniel always showed great respect for a pagan king who had no time for his faith. Even when Daniel has a very heavy word to bring, as he does in Daniel 5, where he's announcing the end of Babylon's kingdom to the king, which happened that night. Invaders came in that very night after Daniel's pronounced it. And even in the face of that sort of kind of a heavy word, he's still speaking respectfully to the king. And some people say, well, hey, now, respect is earned. And that's true, but only to a point. Because no one can earn your respect, my respect, unless we already have a predisposition towards showing respect. Unless we already have a heart that is likely to want to show respect. Unless the inclination of our heart is towards showing respect. And today, in our culture, a lot is said about tolerance because we live in a multi-ethnic culture. Social cohesion is one of our big problems today, one of our big challenges. So there's a lot said about tolerance. Do you know the Bible says almost nothing about tolerance? I don't just mean the word, I mean the idea. I'm talking about tolerance of different races, tolerance of different ethnicities. The Bible says very little about that. It does say a great deal about respect. And respect is greater than tolerance. You see, tolerance, if you think about it, has something of a downward-looking trajectory. It says, look at you with all your strange ideas and weird ways. It's a good thing I'm so tolerant or we'd never get along together. But respect assumes at least an even posture or even upward-looking, which says, I don't agree with you on everything. In fact, on some things, I disagree with you vehemently. But I can see as a human being there's something I can learn from you. And I respect that. That was the attitude of Daniel in Babylon. And it helped him not only stay sane, but out-influence Babylon when it came to relationships. What's the first command with a promise attached in the Bible? Honor your father and mother, mother and father. Honor your parents. Exodus 20, 12. And here's the promise, so that you may live a long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Not the land you were born in, 
the land the Lord your God has given you. And I just pause here because I believe that's for someone in this room. God will call you out of this country, as he did me on two occasions, to another part of the world, and you're going to have to believe this scripture, that God will not only give you the land you had, but the land he's calling you into. In Luke 18, Jesus echoed those words. In verse 20, when he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, don't give false testimony, honour your father and mother. And you know, many of the most pressing social problems we have in Britain today are linked to the tension between generations, between baby boobers and Gen X, between Gen X and millennials, between millennials and what we now call Generation Edge under the age of 19. So many social problems are linked to the tension between those age groups. And the solution to those problems is found here in these verses. Honour your father and mother. And I want you to notice, this command doesn't have any disclaimers attached. It's not like a contract with small print that lets you out of the deal under certain circumstances. It doesn't say, honour your father and mother on the basis of your age or circumstances. So, honour them until you reach the 18-year-old age group or until you're financially independent of them, then you can let them go. Every man for himself. It doesn't say, honour your father and mother on the basis of their age or circumstances. So it doesn't say, honour your father and mother once they reach the age of 60 and become physically dependent on you. Until then, it's their problem. It doesn't say, honour your father and mother on the basis of the quality of their parenting. If they're a good mum and a good day, honour them. It doesn't say that. It says, honour your father and mother, period. You say, why are you telling us this? What are you preaching? Honour your father and mother. Because honouring parents was intended by God to help us to learn early in our lives how to honour all positions of authority. Because the scripture clearly teaches in the New Testament that all authority is delegated. You may have a boss over you in the workspace that you don't get along with very well. But according to the Bible, all authority is delegated. Do you know, if you treat your boss as if he or she, without even knowing it, is accountable to God, you'll have a whole different relationship. Let me tell you what honour is not in the Bible. It's not obeying someone unconditionally, just doing what they say, no matter what they say. It's not following them unquestioningly anywhere they want to take you. It's not imitating them perpetually for the rest of your life, not thinking independently. What honour is in the Bible is an attitude of wanting harmony and wanting to be able to do what they ask, if you can. Honour in the Bible is respecting oversight, their wishes, their views, even when you in good conscience have to walk away and say, I can't do that, I'm sorry, for the following reason, and explaining why you can't do it. Honour is looking for practical ways to invest in the levels, in the lives of those in oversight over us, in practical. You see, this is the difference between honour and just encouragement, which is very important. Encouragement can just be, hey, you're a great guy. Josh, I love your hat, man. Can I have it? No, I'm just joking. And if he gives me his hat, I'll love his watch too. And we'll see how we go. That's encouragement, but it's not necessarily honour. Honour is practical. It's me sharing the benefits 
of favor with those whose example and teaching helped me get the favor. For a long time when I lived in Australia and I was pastoring a church back then, I used to, on Monday, when I least felt like doing anything, on a Monday, after church on Sunday, I would get out of bed, get in my car, drive to my dad's house. He's no longer with us. He's gone to be with the Lord. And I would take him out to play golf all day, or at least half the day. Now, I didn't, want to, I didn't feel like doing it, to be really honest with you. But I, I wanted to find a way to honor my dad. He, he had invested so much in my life that brought me to this point, and I just wanted to show him in a way that he would enjoy some of the favor, the privilege. I would pay for it. I would buy him lunch. We'd have a great time. It's, a, it's a, probably a poor example, but it's actually what honor means. Just think about how good your life would be in the workspace if you practiced that. Or in college or university, that tutor or lecturer that's an absolute pain in the new nowhere. And you would rather be anywhere but in that shoot or that lecture with that person. Imagine if you went into that situation with Daniel's attitude. I'm going to find something that you're presenting that I benefit from. And then down the line, I'm going to look for a way to share the benefits of that favor with you. I don't know, maybe it's buying you a book or something just to say, hey, thank you for sharing that with me. Even if it's only one thing. How would that revolutionize the way we engage our Babylon? In the Bible, honoring others is about tangible things. Do you know the word honor in Hebrew of the Old Testament means to give someone weight or substance in your life. To treat them like they have weight to you. Like they're substantial to you. And the world needs to see examples of godly honor today. All we have in the world, in the marketplace, is award ceremonies. Ah, oh, employee of the month is Joe Smith. Well done, Joe. Thanks very much. See you later. And the best actor, Oscar, goes to... Thank you. I'd like to thank the Academy. That's as far as it goes. That's not honor. Honor is finding practical ways to share the benefits of what someone else has invested in your life. And it revolutionized Daniel's entire relationships with five Babylonian kings. The other thing that Babylon tried to take, and the last one from Daniel and his friends, and this is an interesting one, health, food, Diet. No, I'm not going to give you a lecture on diet. I don't know anything about diet. There's probably people here experts in that. But what we need to understand is for Babylon, it wasn't just what they ate. It was the way they related to their bodies as set-apart people under God. And there's two extremes with the body today in our culture. There's those who worship the body. Nothing wrong with gyms. Gyms are great. How many people go to a gym now and again? all the fit-looking ones. There's a gym culture today that's sort of based around what they call body image. And it, when you hear people say things like, my body is my temple. Well, it sounds really sexy and cool. My 
Well, I can say sexy because Steve said it. <laughs> my body is my temple. Well, that sounds good, but it's actually a misquotation from the Bible. That's where it comes from, but it's not fully quoted. Because in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, the Apostle Paul says, Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. A temple is only as valuable as long as it contains something of greater value than itself. It's not the body that's the key thing. It's what's inside the body, Paul is saying, that makes it a temple. So in 1 Timothy, in chapter 4, he says, physical training is of some value. Do you know God likes it when we work out? He likes it when we look after the body and build it up in that way. It has some value, says Paul, but godliness, that's the inner person. Godliness has value for all things because it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. And the other extreme in our culture is to ignore the body completely, to not give any thought to what you put into it. And the Jews had very clear guidelines about what they should put into their bodies as a, as a symbol of their covenant with God. And when Daniel was offered the rich food of the king, he, res he didn't resist and go out and demonstrate. What do we want? Plain food. Where do we want it now? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with demonstrations. Don't misunderstand me. But it shouldn't be our first option, especially if we're Christians. Because Babylon needs to see us respond in more proactive and positive ways. Let me offer you an alternative, said Daniel. If someone in the marketplace, in business or in education, whatever it is your calling is, wants you to do something that you know is against the will of God for you, instead of demonstrating, reporting them to somebody, I'm not talking about abuse and those situations that need to be reported. You understand what I mean, right? But those things that, that you know, are just annoying and against your principles, instead of making some great complaint, why don't you first, at least, try to offer an alternative? We're talking about out-influencing Babylon. You don't out-influence Babylon by kicking against it. You're doing it by outplaying it, which is what Daniel did. And here's something really interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this before in the Bible. In Revelation 18, verse 21, where it talks about the downfall of the final Babylon, this system of government and thinking we're talking about. It's talking about the downfall of Babylon. It says, O Babylon, your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all nations were deceived. Now, before you get all Harry Potter on me, that's not what sorcery means there. It doesn't mean hocus pocus, the black arts, the occult, and all of that. The word sorcery there is a Greek word which you will recognize when you hear it, pharmakeia, from which we take Pharmacy, pharmaceuticals. This is the Bible here. It's saying that pharmaceuticals are one of the ways in which Babylon deceives people who don't think twice about what Babylon is doing. Now, I believe all technology is amoral. I said that today and yesterday. The technologies we use do not decide our future. future listen, technology is not destiny. We're not a product, ladies and gentlemen, of the text we use. Our future is a product of how we choose to use them. It's human choice, isn't it? 
that makes the difference between a great future and something less than great. And pharmaceuticals, the drugs that we take from a doctor, are a form of technology. That's what they are. They're not electronic, but they're a form of medical technology. And they too are amoral. It's what we do with them that counts. But we're seeing today, in many respects, the drugging of a generation, not just with illicit or illegal drugs, but with legal drugs. The NHS in 2015, 2016, saw a deficit of 1.85 billion pounds, the largest in its history, because the NHS just can't keep pace with the demand for people's service. People want more than the NHS can deliver. It's partly because of aging, we're living longer, we need more medicines. It's partly because we're over-reliant sometimes on professional doctors. We get a sniffle, we go to the doctor. And, and sometimes, not you, but sometimes me, if I see a doctor and he doesn't give me a pill, I feel cheated. How come you didn't give me a drug? What are you there for? And because of our over-reliance on these drugs, we read just a couple of weeks ago here in Britain, death by infectious disease is growing because the drugs are forming immunities or the diseases, rather, are forming immunities to the drugs we use. Some people use technology of this kind as a drug. Physically, mentally. Studies in behavioural psychology show that engagement with social networking, and listen, please, I'm not... I told people yesterday, five million tweets are released around the world every day and one million are mine. I believe in social media. I think Christians have a great role to play in social media if we don't just quote Bible at people who don't even accept the Bible, if we'll engage in conversation and add value to people's lives. I believe in it. But studies in the last three years have shown that over-engagement with social media releases a brain chemical called dopamine. Many of you have heard of it. It's the thing that brings feelings of pleasure and hyper-alertness. It's what students sometimes take to stay awake for long periods. It triggers dopamine because of instant gratification. I go on Twitter, someone's liked me. Oh, yes. I feel validated. Little dash of dopamine. Anticipation. Neuro images show that there's higher stimulation when people anticipate reward than when they get reward. I'm waiting to turn on my Twitter account and see who's like me. Little dose of dopamine. Small pieces of information on social networking make us want even larger amounts of information. Little dose of dopamine. Unpredictability not knowing how much of a response you will get to your doggy or kitten photo. Will it be 100 people who like my Instagram photo? Or will it be three and their dog? Is that all? There's that little dash, little dose of dopamine. Now, little doses of dopamine, like anything else, are not harmful unless they become very big doses of dopamine over a period of time. And listen, as digital technologies become part of an extension of our bodies, most British people today, including me, will not allow their phone to be more than three metres from the, where they're sitting. It's almost an extension now of our physiology. 
as that happens, we need to develop thinking skills as Daniel did to help us stay human. Keep the line between human and machine. That means, first of all, accepting that you are a thinker. Now, I've met Christians all over the world and some of them say, I'm not a thinker. Jesus would not have said, love the Lord your God with all your mind if you didn't have a mind to do it with. Learn to build on the good ideas of other people. Not everything you think that's a good idea will be totally original. And don't worry if it's not. Practice having ideas. When was the last time you sat in a chair and say, well, Lord, help me now to have some ideas because I need some ideas in my life. Sometimes we pray, oh, God, show me your will for my life. And just imagine if the Lord answered our prayers literally the way we asked them. If we, if we prayed, Lord, show me your glory, and he did, you'd be dead in a nanosecond fried to a potato chip on the floor. Imagine God answered the prayer, show me your will for my life, as literally as you mean it. You're standing in the shower. The water's rushing into your face. Oh, Lord, show me your will for my life. And suddenly, a humongous Belshazzarian hand out of Daniel 5, without any arm attached, begins to write on the steamed-up wall tiles of your bathroom. In laser print, signed God. Do you know what I think you and I would say? We would say, is that it? I ask you for my, your will for my life and you give me two words, is that it? I've been going to church for years. I've been tithing every Sunday. I want my money back. <laughs> this is it, two words. You know what those two words would be? Do something. Because the Bible says in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man or woman are directed by the Lord. You've got to be moving for God to direct your steps. Ever tried to steer a stationary car? It's a great way to get a hernia. But you get that car even moving just a little bit, and it's easy to steer with one hand. God's looking for Christians he can steer with one hand because they're busy doing stuff. They're busy thinking stuff. So the next time you have a problem, instead of saying, oh, God, solve my problem, hear what God is saying. Solve it yourself. What? Gave you a brain. It's not there to stop my head caving in, to keep my ears apart. Isn't, do you, do you notice when you first became a Christian, God answered every prayer just like that? Lord, help me to witness to someone. Suddenly someone's there. Boom, whoa, their life's changed. After six years as a Christian, you pray the same thing and absolutely nothing happens anymore. Well, it does. You just don't see it very quickly. Why? Because God wants me to grow up. He wants me to use what he's already given me here. Practice having ideas. Focus, I'm not even finished, focus your thinking because the internet in particular is an ecosystem for distraction. If you're reading a book, you don't see a footnote mentioned. Go to the bottom of the page and say, oh, that's where that came from. I'll go to the bookstore right now and buy that book. Or maybe you do. <laughs> I'm talking to the wrong people. But that's what we do on the internet all the time. We see a hyperlink, we're off. <sighs> totally different subject. We're no longer focused on what we were originally focused on. It's an ecosystem for distraction. Just discipline it is what I'm saying. And think courageously. Do you know, I'm so grateful we have the message of grace today. And I'm so grateful that the church has rediscovered what grace is, including the previously excluded. Those who were cut off 
are now included. That's what grace means through the Bible. But do you know, if there's the possibility of inclusion, there must also logically be the possibility of exclusion. And that's where truth comes in. You can't have grace without truth, my friend. And in the church today, just as much as we need to talk about grace, we need to accompany it in a gracious, loving, servanthood way with talk about truth. Because Jesus, says John 1, appeared full of grace and truth. It says it twice in John 1, just in case we didn't get the message. Full of grace and truth. Truth marks out the parameters of our potential exclusion. If you go here, you will be excluded from grace. God didn't choose it. You did. He doesn't want you there. Stay here. He'll protect you. But the choice is ours. So we need to think courageously. Daniel did. He wasn't afraid to say to the king, you know what, king? God has found your kingdom wanting and he's going to take it from your hand even tonight. That was truth, but said in a gracious way. Ephesians talk about speaking truth with the emphasis on love. I'm not talking about legalism. Legalism is the defensive response of an insecure church to a world it doesn't understand. But that's not truth. Truth is the secure response of a church to a world it does understand all too well and really wants to help. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. It has been my honor to share with these great people. I hope it helps them. I really do. I pray for my fellow believers in Jesus, people who, like me, we, we mess up. We make the same, many of the same mistakes other people do, but, but you pick us up and you dust us off and you give us another chance because you're our Father through Jesus Christ. Help us, those who seek to follow Jesus, never to allow Babylon to rule us. Always to have a positive, proactive attitude that says, I'm going to out-influence my Babylon as Daniel did. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how tough it becomes, no matter how much I'm misunderstood and even opposed, I, like Daniel, I'm going to rise above that and be proactive and be the one on the front foot influencing change. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to to guard our health, including our mental health, and to use our minds in healthy ways. Help us, Lord, to guard our relationships, always showing honor where we can and respect and wanting to do that. And for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, we pray that tonight they'll say yes. Yes, Lord, I want you to get into the driver's seat of this life. I'm tired of driving down dead-end streets and taking U-turns. I want to go where I was born to go. I want to know why I was born. I don't want to die before I know why I was born. I pray that tonight they'll say yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. Take my past and my present and give me the future you intended me to have. We pray it in Jesus' name.